but we're going to be talking about basketball because I think it can unlock the mysteries of human life if we allow it. It allows us to journey into places that just otherwise life seems cloudy and basketball can bring clarity and uh, everything into that place. And not just are we going to talk about basketball, but we're specifically going to be talking about, and we've got some images that we're going to bring up. Uh, the first uh, image is of a particular team, might not be your favorite team, uh, but it's a team that we're going to focus on for a couple of minutes out of Durham, North Carolina, uh, Duke basketball program, the Duke men. Uh, basketball program. Uh, this is a Sports Illustrated preview for the 2005-2006 season. They're uh, actually uh, just one of many images you could find since the uh, early 1980s. Duke has consistently been one of the top programs in all of college basketball, led by, next slide, this guy, Mike Krzyzewski, okay? I know that some of you love them. I know some of you don't because excellence is hard to like interact with and it like has different effects on, on us and that's okay just to be where you are in that moment. But, but Coach K has uh, been there since the year 1980. He's been the head coach the whole time. Uh, he uh, is, is um, just been consistent there. The next slide is his resume because we just want to talk about him for a little while. He is the career uh, leader in wins in basketball, in college basketball, in the history of college basketball for either men or women now. Uh, he's won five, uh, that's five of them, NCAA championships that you'll see there starting in 1991. He's won tons of ACC regular season, ACC tournaments. This guy is a, a Hall of Fame coach. Uh, he is consistent in that. Uh, what you don't see on there is he's also won three Olympic gold medals for the original Dream Team in 1992. He was the only college coach that was on the coaching staff of that squad that won a gold medal in the Barcelona Olympics. And then the last two Olympics, he's been the head coach as the Olympics prior to that, the U.S. had not won the gold medal, so they revamped Team USA. They asked Coach Cade to be the first coach of the revamped and kind of rebranded program. He's led them to gold medal the last two Olympics. So internationally and in this country, he is one of the great coaches of sustained excellence in this wondrous sport that is basketball. He's known for his intensity, which you see in the final one there. He doesn't like that image being shown as much, but, but this is, this is um, the intensity phase. We're going to go back to that in a second. But we're just going to leave the, the Sports Illustrated picture up there for a second because hopefully it'll, it'll illustrate why basketball and why Duke basketball and why Coach K as we started into this series where we're supposed to be talking about Jesus. Here's why. Duke has been a part of my family's history uh, for some time. My, and by my family, I mean my stepmother, uh, Susan. And uh, she went to Duke, went to Duke Law School. And she raised her two boys, my two stepbrothers, on a heavy diet of Duke sports. And what I mean by heavy diet of Duke sports is not Duke football. There's not a lot of like worldwide excitement about that. Um, but there is a lot of excitement about Duke basketball. And so they lived and breathed Duke basketball. And it was not uh, surprising when my oldest stepbrother, Patrick, uh, announced his senior year of high school that he had applied to Duke, he had gotten accepted to Duke, that he was going to Duke and carrying on the family tradition. What was surprising was at the end of his freshman year when he announced he was trying out for the Duke basketball team. Because it's like you're sitting there listening to that going, this is Duke. Like, Duke isn't sitting there going, uh, anybody want to play? I don't know. Like, who want, oh, we're going to have a pickup game. Somebody, you know, we, we're playing Wake Forest next week. Who wants to play? Right? They don't work that way. But Patrick told us that there actually is a tradition, a longstanding tradition at Duke, that they have one spot on their team that is reserved for non-scholarship players, for walk-ons. And that at the end of Patrick's, during his freshman year, the walk-on place was taken by a senior. 
And so that senior had graduated, the spot was open, and Patrick said, I'm going to try out. Now, Patrick had certain advantages and certain disadvantages in trying out. The advantage that he had is that he is six foot ten, which when you're trying to walk into a basketball team is a good thing, right? Um, he's also very athletic. Um, as I said, he's my stepbrother, there are no genetic connections, so he is a 6'10 athlete, and then there's this. And, uh, but, but, but we got the charm and the wit on, uh, in our side of the family. So um, he was trying out. His disadvantage was even though he was taller, he had not played basketball since middle school. And the reason for that was in middle school he had hurt his knee playing basketball, and the doctors had said that as he developed as a teenager, it wouldn't be good for him to go through the constant pounding of basketball. But being an athlete, he devoted himself then to the sport of baseball which is what he played all through high school. He was a pitcher, and it's a pretty intimidating thing when you have a six foot, 10 inch pitcher on the mound. Patrick was actually drafted by a major league team at the end of high school at, uh, in a late round, and he decided not to go that route because it's really hard to even uh, get into a major league squad that way, and he accepted a baseball scholarship to Duke. So that's what he did his first year. He played baseball at Duke as a pitcher. Now, when he announced he was trying out for the basketball team as a walk-on, my father and stepmother were sitting there going, Baseball scholarship, walk-on. Baseball scholarship, walk-on. Do you understand the term walk-on means no baseball scholarship? But he said, but I just want to try. I just want to give it a try and see. Long story short, at the end of two rounds of tryouts, Patrick was awarded the one walk-on spot for the Duke basketball team. He played one year as a walk-on, his first year of eligibility as a sophomore, and he did well enough that his final three years of eligibility, Coach K gave him a scholarship, and he was on scholarship with the Duke basketball team, and in that photo on the cover of Sports Illustrated, in the back row right under the R, that guy in the middle is my stepbrother, Patrick Johnson, living my dream. <laughs> And 12 years after it's done, I'm okay saying that out loud. Like, that's him and this is me. But through this, I got unprecedented access that few people ever get to the Duke basketball program and to Coach K. It's like grace. I did nothing to earn it, but I received it and I reveled in it every day that Patrick was there. One of the things that I remember, for example, is the first game that I got to go to. Patrick and the other players get player passes to the games, and that means you got, for home games, four tickets to every game on the, on the immediate rows behind the, the team's bench in Cameron Indoor Stadium, which if you've never been to Cameron Indoor Stadium, it's one of the great sports venues in all of basketball. The Cameron Crazies are there, and when my dad took me to our first game, I was like, I want to go. I want to get there early. I want to see warm-ups. I want to take this whole thing in uh, and, and just soak in it, and we got there, and we got our player passes, and we go through the line, and people are waiting in line. We didn't wait in line for tickets because we were player passes, and we go up to the window, and we get little tickets, and we go in, and, um, and the, the, you get like the first three rows. Now, Patrick, while he got player passes on the first rows, we were on the third row, right? So we go in to watch the warm-ups, and on the front row were the parents of J.J. Redick, who's on the right there. J.J. Redick's an All-American. He's still playing in the NBA today. And J.J. Redick's parents knew my dad, and the players kind of get to know each other, knew we were third-row people, and they were first-row people. And they said, well, they didn't recognize me. And they said, have you been to a game before? And I said, no, it's my first one. I'm really excited. They said, well, you should sit on the front row. And my dad, because it's J.J. Redick's family, had been schooled by Patrick of what his He's like, no, 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 that's okay, you guys stay there. And I was like, totally, we will completely take those seats. I kicked J.J. Reddick's parents back to the third row and got to sit on the front row, literally right behind the bench. And Cameron Indoor Stadium is a tiny little venue for a sports event. And so you're literally like players, six inches, first row, Thomas, right there in the camera, enjoying it. 
You're so close, you can listen to everything that's being said by the players and in timeouts. It's really amazing. And so I loved it. And as a basketball nerd, I was kind of leaning in. And my dad looked at me, he's like, don't do that. Coach K doesn't like people leaning in during the timeouts uh, and listening. And I was like, yeah, but if I'm, I'm subtle. Like, if, any, if I'm nothing, I am subtle. And so I was doing, like, really subtle things that I'm sure no one knew, which is during the timeouts when the players would be there and the coaches would be there, I would stretch and like lean a little bit. And then I would stretch the other way because you got to stay loose during a timeout, as many of you know. And I would listen. But as the game went on, as it was a pretty intense game and a close game, I quit losing my sublime status of just like fitting in. And I started leaning forward more and leaning forward more and listening. But one of the last timeouts, I was just like over the players like this. And, um, and, and the other team had called a timeout. And Duke, which was, was leading at that point by a little bit, Coach K called a defense in that huddle. And he said, what we're going to do is we're going to catch them off guard. We're going to go into a half-court trap here, which they're not going to see coming, and it's going to confuse them, and, and we're going to do this. And the player said, yeah, that's right. And the coach said, yeah, that's right. And I was like, yeah, that's right, coach. I like it. I like it. And we can go back to the image he doesn't like. That was the closest face I could find on the Internet to the look he gave me um, in that moment. And then he, he said a couple of words to me which we don't use in church. And, uh, and I didn't lean forward during any timeouts after that again in any game that I ever went to. In fact, I wanted to be on the third row and to be away from him as far as possible. It was awesome for, for, for not that moment, but the other moments were awesome. It was incredible for four years to have that sort of encounter with Coach K and with the Duke basketball program. Now, I never really, outside of that moment, got to speak with him very much. But if you think about, and I mean this seriously, if you think about in the New Testament, the story we're about to read that's going to shape this series, when Jesus is interacting with people, he's always talking to them one-on-one, but it says there's crowds around. I was like in the crowd. And your encounter with Jesus can be shaped even if he's not speaking directly to you. I think the crowds were transformed by the encounters they had with Jesus. When I think about my life, when I think about the concept of leadership, much of what I aspire to be or even think about being as a leader, I learned through an encounter with Duke basketball as just one of the crowd. For example, I learned about how, as Max Dupree says, um, leadership is defining reality. Coach K has a standard of how he thinks about their program that's just different. There was one year Patrick was playing there and he was in an interview, Coach K was in an interview and was at, talked about all the players that had played on the previous year's team that had gone on to the NBA and said, so it's kind of a rebuilding year. And Coach K said to the person interviewing, I reject the concept of rebuilding. I can't tell you and control how the year is going to go, but I can tell you our expectation is not to rebuild this year. Our expectation is to do well. It changes things when that's the, the message of someone who's leading any kind of organization. Or you take, for example, this. Saw that Coach K was a leader who believed in a flat, he was secure enough to have a flat hierarchy of leadership. What do I mean by that, a flat hierarchy? Well, you would think with all of his national titles and everything else, you could kind of put him on a pedestal and he would just tell everybody what to do, that everyone else would be minions around him, and that is not how he leads at all. His assistant coaches are people he knows. They directly challenge him. They question him. They uh, have very vocal roles in leadership on the team. The captain of the team has a very vocal role. If you watch Duke during a timeout, even in intense moments of the game, often the assistant coaches and the players will speak more than Coach K. He's not someone who demands to be in the spotlight at all moments and demands for everything to be done his way. He's secure enough as a leader that he invites other perspective. He invites viewpoints. He invites other things to come in, even in tense moments. There's something special about that. Or finally, 
one of the things that I enjoyed seeing and that I appreciated was the fact that relationships and leadership go hand in hand. The first game that I went to that I mentioned, Coach K was not only talking to his own players, but if you watch him before the game, he would be talking to players on the other squad. He would go up to them, he would talk to their coaches, he talked to the assistant coaches, he knew their families, knew their families' names. There were two players on the other squad who had been offered scholarships to play at Duke and had turned them down in order to play for Duke. And he spoke to both of those players during warm-ups, and then he went up into the crowd and spoke to both of their parents who were there for the game, which he has no need to go and do that. But there's this sense of relationships and connecting and bridge building that's important. I have, like many of you, read a lot of books on leadership. Some of them are good, some of them are not. I've been to workshops, I've been to symposiums, I've been to conferences on them. Some of them are good and some are not. None of them have impacted how I think of leadership more than the encounter I got to have with Duke basketball. And I bet I'm not the only one. Encounters in life change us more than anything else. Encounters, if you think about your life, you think about the people that have influenced your life, who you are, how you operate, your personality is probably built on the encounters and experiences you had with people, starting with your parents. Your parents shape you, for better or for worse, more than just about any two people in this world because you encounter and experience life with them, not because you read a book about it and then all of a sudden had new insights that, that changed you more than anything else. Encounters shape us, mold us, change us, transform us. And at the heart of our Christian faith is not intellectual doctrine or dogma, and it's not emotional religious fervor. At the heart of our faith is encounter and experience. Because at the heart of our faith is a relationship with a person, the person of Jesus. And it is that encounter that you and I were created for to mold and shape our lives as well. It's that encounter that we want to pay attention to. And we're going to use a scripture passage. We're going to read a long passage of scripture today as we, as we get into this. And in the coming weeks, we're going to look at individual parts of it. But today, I want us to look at the whole thing and take in this encounter with Jesus that we have and see. It's going to be from Mark 5, starting in verse 21. It says, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And so he went with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and spent all that she had. And she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowds pressing in on you. How can you say who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. 
He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where their child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this they were overcome with amazement and he strictly ordered them that, that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this day that you would encounter us as you do all people through time and that we would have the eyes to see you. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So friends, as we I take this idea that it is encounters that shape us, experiences that shape us, and that is true of our faith, that we were meant to encounter the risen Lord who is alive today in this world as he was 2,000 years ago in this passage. The question before us is how do we do that? Like, do we just sit back and go, okay, if that's true, God, if you want to do something, I'm here. I'll do what you want me to do, but you got to make it clear. And so I'm just waiting to encounter you in some kind of way. Well, what we believe and what we see in scriptures and what we see is that if this encounter is what we're most intended for, that there are actual ways and disciplines and behaviors that you and I can set up and organize our lives around that don't micromanage an encounter, but set us up for that encounter to be received in something real every day of our lives. We can shape our lives for that encounter. See, God is around all the time, but you and I are just so busy with our important lives and our to-do lists and everything else and the very real responsibilities that we have that most of the time we just don't see it. But what does it mean to stop and to say we can actually intentionally pursue certain behaviors so that these encounters become more and more real to us and shape us every single day? We see that in the pattern of Scripture, and we've talked about this before, and we're going to talk about it again, that there are really three behaviors that you see that these people lean into in the New Testament and that Jesus embodies, and they're all here in this passage. Patterns of solitude, patterns of community, and patterns of service. When we talk about how do we encourage one another to follow Jesus where we live, work, and play, we encourage the behaviors of solitude, community, and service. That is in these things that we encounter Jesus, and all of them are present here. And today, we're going to spend some time talking about solitude. And how do we do that? Now, when you hear this, when we read this passage, you might be sitting there going, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of solitude. There's a lot of activity. There's healing. There's people talking. There's a crowd. The crowd is like, has this kind of frantic feel to it when you read the passage all the time. There doesn't feel like a lot of solitude. Solitude is praying on a mountain by yourself. Solitude is a spiritual retreat. And that is practices of solitude. And you and your chairs had some things that you can take home with you that are some invitations to solitude in the coming weeks here. One of them is a silent retreat. Those things are good. But what we see in this passage is that solitude doesn't have to wait for these mountaintop experiences that are rare. You can have solitude in the midst of your crazy, busy day. And there's this strange, you see it here in this passage, this strange dichotomy of the frenzy of the crowd and then these calm, almost serene interactions that Jesus has with individuals. And I would say that those are moments of solitude. We see three of them in this passage. We see this, the, the transition when Jesus gets in, in the boat and he goes across the Sea of Galilee and lands and the crowd's waiting for him. The crowd is almost like a character in the story. They're like waiting. You can feel their energy as he comes, this anxiety as he arrives. And in the midst of that anxiety and the crowd pressing in on him, it says that a figure emerges from the crowd, a man named Jairus. 
And Jairus doesn't approach Jesus as the wealthy leader of the synagogue that he was, the respected religious person. He approaches Jesus as a desperate dad whose daughter is dying. And he comes in and he says to Jesus, and while the crowd's also there, there's this incredible intimacy with Jairus and Jesus where Jairus tells Jesus about his little girl and says, will you come with me because you can heal her? And Jesus responds by going. The noise sort of drowns out and you just see Jairus and Jesus right there together. You see the second interaction of solitude as the two of them are going and going towards Jairus' house. And again, the crowd, it says, is pressing in on them. And it almost makes me feel nervous when I read this. Just this like mob of people pressing in on you from all sides that you're trying to move forward. And in the midst of that crowd, a woman who it says has been hemorrhaging for over a decade leans out to touch Jesus' clothes. And after she does, she is healed of this. Now, this woman is someone who has been suffering from this disease for over a decade. She has been hemorrhaging, and that means that not only does she have the physical pain and difficulty of that, but she is seen at that time as ceremonially unclean and could bring that uncleanliness onto others. And so she was avoided by society. She had become an outcast because no one could do anything about it. She, in this passage, doesn't even have a name anymore. Jairus has a name. Other people have names. We have no idea what her name is because all she had become is the unclean one in the eyes of everyone. And yet in the midst of the crowd, Jesus stops and says, who touched me? And he waits and the disciples are going, come on, this little girl's dying. You can imagine Jairus sitting there going, why are you stopping? My girl is dying. Let's go. The crowd is pressing in on him. And yet Jesus stops and waits until she comes forward. And it says that as she comes forward with fear and trembling, she tells him her whole truth. Now, I don't know how long that took, but I bet it was more than five seconds. And Jesus listens and responds and then calls her daughter. There is this unbelievable moment of intimacy that takes place in the midst of the chaos, and I would call that solitude, intimacy with Jesus. And finally and last, it takes place with Jairus' daughter, this little girl who is dead when Jesus arrives, being mocked again by the crowd. And yet the calm in the midst of that, that Jesus takes this little girl's hand and prays with her and says to her to get up, and she does this intimate moment that she has with Jesus. And in each of these moments, they are sent out in new, transformed people. Those are the words we use about God, right? He redeems. He's the redeemer. He's the savior. He saves us. All of those assume and acknowledge the fact that we are broken people living in a broken world. And friends, if we're going to encounter God in solitude, it begins with encountering him in our places of need. In our places of need. Now, that can feel like a weird thing to talk about on, like, fall kickoff Sunday. We have energy, we had popsicles, like, there's lots of good things, and all of a sudden, there's, like, this, like, kind of, what are we talking about? This is the time when we start ramping up. This is the time when schedules get busier. This is the time we start leveraging our strengths. This is the time we start making goals. This is the time when our kids sign up for the things that they're gifted at and passionate about so that they can have a step forward, so they can get into the right college, and then they can do the right stuff, and then they can move forward. This is the time we kind of organize and have our, our sets and our accountability and everything else, and we're starting by talking about our difficult places of hurt and brokenness and need, but where we encounter Jesus is in those places. Question today is what does it look for you to hold that place out in your life and ask and hold it before Jesus like Jairus, like this woman, and say, what, is it, what do you want to do with this? This is my life too. Because we spend in our culture an inordinate amount of time and energy on appearing like we have everything together rather than actually pursuing having everything together. If you look at people's social media pages, it is a competition for who has the greatest life of all time, right? 
It's a competition who has the greatest life. It's the greatest vacation, better than any vacation I've taken for. The meal I just had at the restaurant, best meal that I ever had. The friend that I'm hanging out with, best friends that I ever had. We can't even call someone best friends. We've got to have best, best friends and everything else because there's just not enough goodness to go around to describe the amazing awesomeness of my life. Every day is just better than the day before. It is a constant pursuit of perfection one day and joy one day and happiness and contentment and fulfill it, but tomorrow's going to be better. We can see that in other people and we actually sit there and believe that the appearance of, of that joy is actually the true story. And we can spend way more energy cultivating health ourselves rather than actually pursuing health. Because Jesus promises an abundant life, but it's not about burying the hard places and the difficult places and the anxious places. But as we see in this passage, it begins with in solitude carrying those places to Jesus and believing that he can transform it. It's about moving towards pain and hardship and anxiety and difficulty and fear versus bearing it away and acting as though it's not there. What does that look like for you, like in this story, to encounter Jesus in that place, to hold it before him and to keep holding it before him, believing that he will redeem and save and transform and lead to new life? Like many of you, I've had a very cool summer and we're going to end with this. And I've struggled with how to end this sermon, so I'm just going to do it in what I feel like is the best way, other than to take over. Um, but in my own life, I have many blessings. You could probably look at my family's social media page, and it's like, it's just awesome day after awesome day. And I have a lot of things I'm grateful for. And it's not about bearing this. I don't want, I don't want any of you to feel like I shouldn't say that stuff, because we should give thanks for the blessings in our life. I had great summer. I had amazing vacation. I had, uh, I'm grateful for this church. I'm grateful to be a pastor of this church. I am grateful for my wife. I am grateful for my kids. God has blessed me in many different ways, and I am grateful for all of that. But like all of us, every one of the people sitting in this room, we have, and I have, places of difficulty and pain that today and this week you point and just hold out to Jesus and say, what do you want to do with this? And while it won't go on social media... This week, I'll be with Patrick, my stepbrother, who played basketball at Duke. We're going to be in Atlanta this week because, as most of you know, my father passed away last spring. My stepmother, Patrick's mom, Susan, has a terminal disease as well, and as she needs more care, and after my dad is gone, she's had to move into an assisted living facility, and to pay for that facility, we have to hold a very quick estate sale this week to sell as much of my dad and Susan's stuff as possible and to sell their house in order to have the money for her to be able to go into the place that she needs to go to. And so my week this week will be going through my dad's last stuff and closing that chapter. And there will be laughter as my brothers and I get together and my stepbrothers are there and there will be memories, but there will be tears and there will be pain and there will be grief because, because I still miss my dad. And today and this week, I got to move towards that. And in the midst of that, what I want to do and what I want us to be a community that does is to take those things and not bury them and not hide from them and not grit our teeth and get through them or not be scared and think they're going to overwhelm, them, but overwhelm us. But I want us to take them and hold it out and to say, what are you going to do with this? He's been redeeming that pain in my life, but I need that to continue. He has been transforming that pain in my life, but I need that process to continue. And the question is, do I have the faith this week to hold it out there without being able to control it and just say, what do you want to do with this? And believing that I'll encounter him and that he'll keep showing up. What would that look like for you in your life? And if we did it this week, 
if we did it day after day, if we didn't move on to the next thing that catches our attention online as we leave this place, but if we really held that place of pain and need out, imagine the stories we will tell next Sunday when we walk in the store. And in the weeks and months to come as we encounter the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray and we're going to stand and sing one last song. Lord, we ask that you would meet us in our need and that even now in this moment, in this moment right now of worship, in the next few minutes, we would knowledge hold those places before you and trust that in holding it out, you will do your great work. May we encounter you now and this week and this day and that you would continue to redeem and save and transform and breathe new life into us all. We lift this prayer before you in Christ's name. Amen.